Welcome back, one and all, to the Tech Policy Podcast. I am Corbin Barthold. I'm pleased to be joined once again today by Tech Freedom's Free Speech Council, Ari Cohn. Bad tech policy, driven sometimes by viciousness, sometimes by ignorance, often by both at once, is a bipartisan affair. Please don't mistake us as saying otherwise at any point on this episode. Uh, Nor would we ever claim that everyone in a given political party, even the Republican Party, is hopeless on every tech issue. Uh, Obviously, that'd be painting with too broad a brush. Still, if we have to give a trophy, a tech golden raspberry, if you will, for worst tech policy performance to one side, I'm sorry to say the winner right now has to be the Republicans and the political right. Maybe they only win by a nose, but it's certainly enough uh, to get them an episode on this show devoted to the subject of right-wing tech illiteracy. There are a number of themes at play here, although they all connect to each other. I have in my head a picture of sort of a a web of political asininity. When it comes to tech policy, the loudest and most prominent figures on the right fixate on petty and irrelevant issues. They use tech policy, which when done correctly, is a pretty meaty topic, as a totem for culture war. I have in mind, at least to begin with, the GOP leaders who are still shouting constantly about Hunter Biden's laptop. Because tech policy for such people is not an end in itself, it should come as no surprise that they tend to emphasize theatrics and tribalism over substance. For instance, many GOP politicians take a position on Section 230, that utterly contradicts their supposed opposition to what they call big tech censorship. Their stances are incoherent, but they make for good sound bites, which seems to be what matters to them. My favorite recent example of placing tribalism over policy comes from the GOP wing of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Last year, they issued an agenda that called for stronger antitrust enforcement, but, quote, without giving expansive antitrust authorities for FTC chair Lena Khan. Got that? They want aggressive antitrust policy, but not done by progressives because, you know, progressives, you. As a side note, to the extent we can forgive the GOP here for just having radically different antitrust priorities from Chair Khan, perhaps the lesson is that the word antitrust shouldn't mean whatever you want it to mean. But I digress. Another theme at play here is the new right-wing fixation on victimhood. At least, I think it's new. I know that point is debatable. At any rate, for those of us who once took the GOP more seriously, this one's a doozy. The party that was once all about the American dream and the drive to succeed and lifting yourself by your 
bootstraps, all that good stuff, morning in America, now invokes Orwell and Kafka whenever a tweet gets taken down. The grand theme, the center of the web, as it were, is the modern GOP's eagerness to place sound and fury above knowledge and expertise. If power means never having to say you're sorry, populism means never having to understand what you're regulating. We'll be touching on that one quite a bit. Ari and I are going to frame the conversation around two recent articles of ours. One is Ari's and my piece out last week at Tech Dirt on the House GOP's new select subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. A major aim of that body will be to, quote, get to the very bottom, Kevin McCarthy's words, of big tech's supposed oppression of conservatives. You might say that Ari and I are not convinced that that's a real concern, or that if it were, the subcommittee would get to the very bottom of it. You might say with greater accuracy that we take the piss out of the GOP leadership and ridicule its weaponization subcommittee mercilessly. The other piece is by me. It was published last month in The Bulwark, and it's on the GOP's quixotic decision to make a grand cause out of sending people spammy fundraising emails. I will take us down that rabbit hole in the second half of the episode. Okay, that was a long intro. I swear Ari is actually here. Ari, hello. It is so good to have you on. It is great to be back as always. Ari is sounding very good today. He and I are both dealing with illnesses, but I actually think it's done wonders for his radio voice. I have a face for radio. Well, diving into our tech dirt piece, I I don't know. I mean, I guess the way that laws now all have to, or bills, I should say, all have acronyms. I shouldn't be surprised that committees now have really dumb names too. Weaponization is not really... It's such a buzzword, and the notion that you would put it into the title of your committee is revealing about how serious you are about your chosen topic. At least that was one of my first reactions. And then there's the further point, as we point out in our piece, and as others have pointed out, that it's not actually clear to a dispassionate bystander whether the committee is truly pro or con weaponization. It is just on weaponization and there's a a lot of a lot of hypocrisy here so having set the table thus ari can you take us away in in you know what is this committee what does it claim that it wants to do what's the beginnings of our problem with it well the committee does or says it's going to do uh, a lot of different things it is just generally pissed off as republicans are want to be these days um about Anything that the administration that is not them has done um, or agencies they do not feel they have appropriate levels of control over have done. Uh, So they're mad about things like the CDC communicating with social media platforms about COVID-19 stuff. They're mad about Twitter and the Hunter Biden laptop story. They're worried about like 60 different things with the FBI, only half of which I can even remember. They're they're just they're mad about everything and of course every government initiative that is not thought of by them uh is deemed to be weaponization. You you mentioned the um 
the the name of the committee and that's you know it, the name is is part of the the political theatrics of this all because that that's that's what this is and a lot of it was inspired by the twitter files the document dumps from elon musk's hand-picked surrogates i'd like to uh, give a shout out to alex stamos who on his uh podcast on content moderation always introduces the topic by going the twitter files okay i mean i guess we have to start with the twitter files the twitter files <laughs> that's right in a world <laughs> that's right where one company controls access to the public sphere where entire political elections are about a single new york post story <laughs> exactly so you know they're gonna be investigating all of the ways in which they think that the executive branch and its agencies uh, have been very naughty, capital V, capital M, about speech and other you know political hot button issues. What I would say to segue us into sort of the meat of our article, it's the paranoia and the John Birch Society rhetoric and the idea that everything is intentional and some kind of dark conspiracy. It's all of that that grates on me when the Republicans raise their, their complaints. But underlying all of the rhetoric, and this is a little bit frustrating, they could have set up a committee that was far more serious and that wanted to conduct investigations that I wouldn't have necessarily opposed. Right. And that is true even when it comes to their stuff about big tech and oppression of conservatives. I wouldn't put it that way. Um, but if you strip away, and I do think this is a good shorthand, all of the John Birchy stuff uh, in their hollerings, underlying it, one of their goals, uh, if you put aside their desire to obstruct the January 6th prosecutions and defend Donald Trump's interference with the 2020 election and all that good stuff, which I think they have no leg to stand on and I don't support the committee existing at all. Put all that stuff aside. If they had just said, we want to conduct a sober investigation of the way that the government interacts with large technology companies, particularly when it comes to social media and speech online, I would have been fine with that. I think that that in principle is an okay thing for a congressional committee to do. So could you maybe take us into why is that okay? And then sort of how do they drift into making it weird, as the kids say? Yeah, I mean, anybody who has known me for five minutes or more uh, will know that I am on record forcefully and repeatedly opposing any kind of government attempts to insert themselves into content moderation or, you know, what speech people publish or don't publish. Uh, I think that is uh, squarely outside of the government's domain, and the First Amendment prohibits them from doing it directly. Now, uh, as we point out in the piece, not all government attempts to indirectly do that are necessarily legally prohibited. You know, the, the government is free to make its opinion known on certain speech. Social media platforms are totally within their rights to take the government's position into account or even to ask the government what their position is if they so choose. Um, you get to a First Amendment problem when there is something like a, a coercive effort by the government, you know, think back to the old 
dial a porn cases where uh, DAs would threaten that if certain customers weren't cut off, the phone company would be charged, you know, then you get to a state action problem on behalf on the part of a private party. And you can run into a problem when two entities are so intertwined that something has to be deemed the action of the government. But simply talking to the government, taking the government's perspective into account, or the government offering its perspective in the first place, just isn't enough to run afoul of the First Amendment. And we see a lot of misconceptions of that online. Well, um, Facebook or Twitter or Facebook was asking the government what their position was and then acting accordingly. Um, how is that not a giant First Amendment violation? It isn't. Uh, the there is no First Amendment doctrine that says the government and private parties can't talk to one another and are not allowed to ever agree on things. Yeah, I think two things that people miss in all of this. Number one, the government is allowed to have opinions of its own. It can be uh, pro-democracy and anti-communism, to use an extreme example, but even down into nitty-gritty policy issues, it, it's allowed to speak and give its opinion, including directly to private parties. So it, there's nothing legally problematic about a certain degree of them trying to influence private parties, which leads me into the second point that, um, and this is really difficult for people, it, it's a continuum. There is a spectrum. It is not a switch that is on and off where the government speech is proper here and improper there, and it's really obvious and easy to tell necessarily. There are extreme examples on both sides, obviously, but the spectrum from... The government is just stating that it's pro X down to the government is using its bully pulpit to try to influence things to the government is using intimidation to coerce a decision. Those are those are gray lines. And I think a lot of people, you know, they they want things to be black and white. And the moment the government makes a request of a social media company, they think it's a First Amendment violation. But I think, um, go ahead. I, th I think the gray line actually is a reason why this is okay for Congress to investigate. Um, we want to know what the government is doing in these conversations with private parties. And most of the time, we can't always tell exactly what is going on. Uh, there are two parties that have the information. There are the social media platforms who, you know, they might decide to disclose uh, what kind of government job owning they've been subjected to. They might not. Uh, and then there's the government. And anyone who's tried to file a FOIA request to the federal government knows uh, how coin flip of a situation that can be at times. Uh, so it is important that we know exactly, you know, what's going on. I see no problem with that. And, and frankly, uh, if the government, specifically the executive branch, doesn't want people digging into this, there's an easy solution. They can butt out. From my perspective, uh, they should. Uh, the government should not be uh, inserting itself into these things in the fashion that it has. And we point to some examples in the article, you know, the um, Vivek Murthy's, uh, the Surgeon General's guidelines, social media platforms followed almost immediately by a Biden surrogate going on or a Biden comms person going on MSNBC and in a conversation about this same topic saying, yeah, we are uh, looking at Section 230 and then we want to make sure platforms are legally accountable for X, Y, and Z. I mean, 
there's there's a clear pressure campaign there. And, you know, there's things like uh, Jen Psaki saying, well, you know, we're flagging all this misinformation on social media platforms. And we think that if you get banned from one platform, you should get banned from every platform, which, I mean, set aside the obvious absurdity of that. You know, the the, the government is uh, is not shy about telling platforms what it thinks they should do. You know, I, I would agree with uh, a lot of the detractors in saying that's uh, not entirely appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they, uh, going back to my issue that unfortunately, um, you know, it's just a matter of degree and it can be hard. I, I can't I just can't go quite so far as to say that the government should have zero contact with social media. You know, if, if uh, to use a, an example, like I personally don't see any problem with the government saying, uh, hey, we are pretty sure that uh, account Y is a foreign influence campaign uh, and we're flagging that for you. And we're all coming in with kind of different priors where I am pretty comfortable with that. But there was just huge mission creep during the pandemic where it turned into a sort of general campaign to police the common good on social media um, where the government became very meddlesome. We sort of quickly got from flagging accounts because they're saying that 5G causes COVID to getting into uh, genuine policy debates that can have very reasonable disagreements over whatever, you know, masking or whether schools should be open. And I think that ties into your point that it's perfectly legitimate for Congress to want to know what was said and why. There have been some messages that have been revealed of internal Twitter employees uh, saying, I met with the government agents, they were intensely interested or or they immediately asked about Alex Berenson. And I, I carry no water for Alex Berenson and his positions, but simply the fact of what does that mean? Does it mean they literally just asked? Does it mean that they they gave some kind of directive, you know, what was the level of pressure? Where were we in that conversation in the spectrum between we are concerned about content from account Z to some kind of actual coercion? Because as we discussed in the article, even with all of these releases in the Twitter files, we have yet to see anything that crosses the line and turns the content moderation of a platform into state action. But I don't think it's illegitimate for a congressional committee to say we need to dig in and make sure that that's correct, that that's true. Yeah. And then you also like kind of have stuff on the other side. Um, Mike Masnick dug into this a little bit on Tech Dirt, um, where the government had some of its own accounts whitelisted uh, and then kind of changed what they were after they were whitelisted and started doing their own misinformation campaign, their own foreign influence campaigns, uh, kind of in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, and in a way that probably violates Twitter's policies, but they've been whitelisted and uh, therefore kind of never got flagged. So, you know, you you also kind of have it on the other side where um, the government is using social media platforms kind of as their unrestrained propaganda platform, so to speak, uh, kind of a loaded word, but, you know, so the, the government's trying to game the system from both ends here a little bit. And and I, th I think we, we, we ought to know why. 
Well, that ties into my my problem with the Republicans, their emphasis, their approach, their way of going about things. I'm like Republicans, man, don't make it weird because they have insisted that, uh, you know, this is going to be like the church committee that uh, uncovered abuses uh, in the intelligence agencies. Well, can you not have to go to 11 like that? Because that's a preposterous connection. That's not we're just clearly not at anything like that. It's it's akin to the constant references to Orwell and Kafka, where by grossly overstating your case, you kind of blow it. I mean, you cause people to discredit you, even though there's a kernel of validity to what you're saying. The kernel here being government agents left to their own devices without oversight often quickly start misbehaving. That's a Imagine thing. that. So there is a degree that I, I just I am fully down with the degree of ridicule in our article. But there there also and this doesn't really come through in this article. Maybe I'll have to write in another piece. There's a little bit of disappointment of competent, serious people actually could have made this into something valid. Maybe that's a good moment to mention quite uh, quickly. There is a bill introduced by a couple GOP representatives that I know you wanted to highlight maybe in the hopes of you know praising the little kernels of seriousness that have been shown by the party yeah comer and mcmorris rogers introduced a bill that not perfect it's it's got some vagueness issues and would do well with some serious tightening up but at its core what it does is it prevents government employees uh, from basically doing exactly what we've said is, uh, you know, influencing platforms to moderate content in a particular way. And that's, that's fine by me as, as far as I'm concerned. Great. And, you know, there's bills like um, Senator Hagerty's bill last year, which would have required the executive branch to disclose every single time somebody contacted a platform about content moderation and disclosed the conversation. That's great. The only way we're going to know if there's a First Amendment violation is if we have the information. And right now there's um, an asymmetry in that information. So anything that we can do to make it clear what's going on, great. And if the government wants to ban the government from influencing these decisions, you won't hear any arguments from me. But all this is to say is these are real solutions, one of which was proposed more than a year ago, maybe almost two years ago at this point. We didn't really need a committee for that. We didn't need uh, this performative theatrical bullshit. What we needed was people who could isolate the problem, which is fairly obvious, and actually write something that would help address it. And throughout the process of hearings on those bills, we could get some more information. So, you know, while I'm not saying that the there's no conceivable benefit of a committee, the fact that these legislators have introduced actual productive bills that could help solve the problem. Instead, what we're going to have is a clown show of epic proportions. And it's not going to be limited to the government. You know, Jim Jordan already sent letters demanding that the tech companies send over their information about what the government said to them. Well, a serious red flag here is that the Twitter files seem to be a driving motivation for Jim Jordan and the subcommittee. The Twitter files 
as we write are much misunderstood and even more misrepresented. So could you walk us through maybe a few of the examples here? There have now been so many of these things. I think people, they, they've, there have been diminishing marginal returns on each new release and people have started to really ignore them. And kind of rightly so, because a lot of the hoopla just hasn't panned out. So could you spell out a bit of, of why some of these releases have just been really overblown? Yeah, one of my favorite was the claim that the Biden campaign flagging things uh, for Twitter was a First Amendment violation. There's just a, a fundamental misunderstanding of one and or a second thing, uh, the first of which being linear time and the second of which being what the government is, because the Biden campaign was not the government. Trump was running the government at, the, at that point, uh, and nothing that the Biden campaign could have done could possibly have violated the First Amendment because everyone involved was a private party. No matter how many times you pointed that out to people online, they just refused to take it as anything other than the crime of the century that the Biden campaign would have reached out and said, hey, this stuff has non-consensual dick pics of Hunter Biden. Maybe you should take it down. It violates your policies. If that's the crime of the century, then we really live in boring times, to be honest. <laughs> there was that. And there was the government conspired with social media platforms to silence the Hunter Biden laptop story. And of course, uh, Matt Tybee himself said there was no evidence of any government involvement. Then when you when you say that, all you get back is, oh, but it was election interference, which the FEC has helpfully told us it absolutely was not. And then there's the 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 FBI is paying Twitter to censor conservatives on Twitter. You really have to admire the lack of intellectual curiosity of anyone who bought and parroted that because it did not take much to figure out that, no, that's not exactly what was happening. That's not what was happening at all. The FBI was reimbursing Twitter for its costs in complying with court orders for information, something that the statute explicitly demands so as not to uh, burden private parties with the cost of law enforcement. Um, it just time after time, and you can't really reason with the people who are seeing what they want to see because they're just going to see what they want to see. And you can throw all of these things in their face and tell them, but they want to be mad about it. They want to make a big stink about it. And so they're not going to going to let the facts get in the way. And it's, it's going to be much the same with the committee. They're not going to be interested in the explanations that tell them, Hey, this is not what you think it is. Um, they've already made up their minds about what it is. So that's another red flag is just the track record of these hearings. They tend to be so painful to watch. The January 6th committee really beat expectations in sort of breaking that trend. But as we all know, uh, part of the reason is precisely because the GOP erred in sort of declining to participate and also nancy pelosi made the choice that jim jordan would not be allowed to participate yeah, um, i mean if i'm going to be live tweeting any of these hearings illinois is going to have to decriminalize something much stronger than weed <laughs> yeah they're hard to watch um yet another red flag here that this is not the serious committee you're looking for is 
just the degree on the wider right right now to which who whom politics have been embraced the sort of leninist concept where nothing is about principle or substance it's simply who are we and who is the enemy and if it benefits us and hurts the enemy that's our position and we've seen that recently when elon musk suspended some journalists from twitter on trumped up charges no less about doxing and many on the right responded with just whoops of glee and that musk had just engaged in precisely the sort of conduct that those pundits have so long been denouncing and claiming are like totalitarianism and again orwell kafka their two favorite buzzwords and that was just of no consequence and the other thing that just blew my mind was, you know, so there were some on the left who pointed out that these suspensions were arbitrary and impulsive and imposed under false pretenses. And there were, I just, I lost count of the number of right-wing op-eds crowing about the hypocrisy of pointing that out, which it was this weird situation because for you to point out that hypocrisy had to make you yourself a hypocrite. And that was just sort of always buried. We're just going to forget about that. We're going to forget about our position. Now that uh, our guy, quote unquote, has control, we're all down with, quote unquote, censorship. I mean, and that's that kind of the whole like that that is the grand descriptor of united states politics right now uh it is uh, a taste of your own medicine forget all the norms forget all the principles uh what you do to me is fair game for me to do to you regardless of whether i thought it was wrong when you did it to me uh that that is us politics in a nutshell right about now that yes so uh, again going to at the outset a bipartisan theme um but uh, it's just very clear that that attitude is going to reign on this committee. And so there's a, just an overarching belief on your and my part that, uh, you know, these people, Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, et al., are not out to defend your free speech rights. That's these are not your guys. Um, Absolutely not. And as I also mentioned at the outset, you know, yet another sign of that that's much more long running is, well, we hate that the government is pressuring social media campaigns to take down the uh, tweet encouraging you to take, you know, the horseworm medication for your COVID. But we also hate Section 230, which is the law that ensures that a social media platform can host a pro-horseworm medication material without being worried that it will be liable for it. And those two positions contradict each other. And the people who are running this weaponization subcommittee could not care less about that fact. So we frame the article around the um, sharp pen of Aubryn Waugh, the writer, son of Evelyn Waugh. And he said that uh, until the public accepts that the urge to power is a personality disorder in its own right, there will always be a danger of circumstances arising which persuade ordinary people to start listening to politicians and taking them seriously. And uh, although a sweeping claim, that is how I feel when I look at the new House Speaker and his weaponization subcommittee. I'll say I'm a little bit more on the extreme of that I tend to agree with him in pretty much all circumstances on that one. I think that's a fair position. Okay, 
Moving on to emails, particularly spam emails. So uh, last month, and I want to give a shout out here at the outset um, to Mike Masnick. He is, of course, the publisher of Tech Dirt and therefore hosted the article that we've just spent um, a half an hour or whatever discussing. He also did a lot of the spade work, um, the journalism that uh, I read and relied on in writing this article. Um, so shout out to him. I This is one of those ones that anybody who has actually received these kinds of letters or emails will intuitively know what I'm talking about. And then the people who haven't, I think, just are going to have a hard time understanding how bonkers political fundraising has long been, but is now it's just getting much worse very quickly. Um, I actually, my grandmother-in-law, as she was declining, it was so sad, you know, she'd get these letters in the mail that were like what I'm about to talk about. And this was like 10 years ago. And it was just sad to see in real time how much of it you get, especially if you if there's blood in the water, if you've given a little money to a campaign, um, and how it manipulates people. So at the outset of my article, I, I just pick one, you could pick one almost at random, um, a uh, campaign email during the closing days of the Herschel Walker, Raphael Warnock runoff election, in which you are promised that if you meet a deadline, all caps of whatever it is, one hour, uh, and give some money, it's like $25, small donor donations have really exploded in the last few years, by the way, you'll get a, quote, 3,400% impact increase. Uh, good luck knowing what an impact increase is. They are clearly trying to trick people into thinking there is a matching donation. Uh, where a 3,400% such increase is coming from is, of course, unstated. Bottom line, these emails are fraud. I mean, maybe, I don't know if it meets whatever the legal definition is, but in the common sense definition of the word fraud, these emails are fraud. And they're surrounded by this, this terrible apocalyptic rhetoric. You know, they always say things like the fate of America is in your hands. One of my least favorite ones is this juvenile claim that's in some of them, you know, if you uncheck the box, uh, that is the donate box or the doubling box, we will have to tell Trump that you are a defector. Just mind-blowing material. I mentioned a moment ago that all of this stuff meets the common sense definition of fraud. I should add, there has been legitimate trickery here. So during the 2020 election, Republican fundraising emails regularly contained pre-check boxes that they're like buried beneath many lines of like bold screaming about the end of the world. And then, but it says, you know, your donation will be doubled. And then that wasn't enough for them. So they started putting boxes in that would make your donation recur. And then that wasn't enough. So they started having the recurring donation occur like once a week. So there were these elderly folks on fixed incomes whose bank accounts, suddenly their checks started bouncing. And it was because unbeknownst to them, they had started making a recurring double donation every week to a Republican campaign. Uh, so if that's not legitimate fraud, I'm not sure what it is. So the Trump campaign wound up having to issue $122 million in refunds 
for its cycle uh, of the last election. Um, that is more than six times the amount that the Biden administration had to dole out. After the election occurred, the Trump campaign collected $250 million for a, quote, official election defense fund that turned out not to exist. There's just so much going on here in the background that anyone associated with it should be ashamed with, um, ashamed to be connected with. And yet that's all just table setting to the campaign last year and continuing by the Republican Party to turn their spam emails into a cause to make them into martyrs when those emails are sent to a spam folder. So they blanket email accounts with these, these emails, with the boxes and the recurring and the tricks and the rhetoric, all of that. They send a lot of these. Uh, if you once they get you, you can easily start getting a dozen of these a day. A study last spring by some North Carolina State University computer scientists found that more of these GOP emails were going into Gmail spam folders than were Democratic Party equivalents. The study did not look into whether this is because the Republican campaign's have worse email hygiene. And side note, um, Eric Erickson, the conservative radio host, dug into this and found that they, they pretty clearly do. They send the emails more often. They share email lists across entities, which is a bad idea. There were other factors he discusses in his article, but just for all kinds of reasons, they're just, the GOP campaigns are not great or haven't been in the past about doing the things that keep the spam folders from getting tripped. So the study didn't look into that. And it also found that if you just flag a handful of emails, say this is spam or this is not spam, Gmail quickly becomes totally neutral. Of course, the Republicans missed that or uh, overlooked it and started to clamor about how this study showed and this connects to my John Birch complaint. Uh, you know, everything always goes to intentional. This is deliberate. This is a conspiracy. Uh, Senator Steve Daines kicked things off an op, an op ed saying, quote, the study unmistakably exposed big tech's most egregious attempt to tilt the scale toward left wing candidates. And it all kind of went downhill from there. In uh, later in the spring last year, GOP senators met with Google's chief legal officer and they berated him in a private meeting. Uh, Senator Chuck Grassley said, if you mail a letter, you expect it to be delivered. He reportedly was like shouting this, you know, that's what should happen. Totally ignoring the distinctions between costless email spams that can be sent 12 times a day versus the physical mail. Senator Marco Rubio reportedly groused that all his emails were being blocked, only to discover later that his operatives had failed to follow the basic steps that bulk use email accounts must take to authenticate themselves. Uh, there was a great Washington Post article on this meeting in which it said, quote, many lawmakers relayed personal anecdotes that revealed limited understanding of how Gmail works. Imagine the uh, surprise. Yeah, just unbelievable. So 
the Federal Election Commission actually signed off on a Google plan to create a program under which political campaigns and parties could basically bypass a lot of the spam filtering. However, in order to partake in the program, you would have to ensure that no more than 5% of your emails were manually flagged as spam by users. Uh, that I, it doesn't take a cynic to be convinced that that was the reason that the Republicans then declined to um, partake in that program. Instead, they filed a lawsuit in California federal court. That lawsuit is a doozy. It says that these RNC emails, which I already sort of described at length, they convey, quote, important information and help, quote, build communities. I thought that was really rich in the complaint. Um, they claim that Google is doing this all deliberately, which side note, that would be really dumb on Google's part. I suppose it's theoretically possible, but the notion that uh, being biased against Republicans because you hate them in your spam folder, to think that that would just work without consequence is uh, okay. <laughs> we'll see, I guess, because there's a lawsuit. In a phenomenal display of cheek, the RNC complained uh, that Google was doing this despite the RNC's best efforts to work with Google. This after the GOP spurned the special program that the FEC had signed off on. Anyway, the point of the lawsuit is basically to make it so that Gmail has to deliver every one of these GOP spam emails into inboxes. And that's the grand take home here is like the whole thing is a campaign to send more spam which just blows my mind. So that's the article, Ari. I uh, I just I just went ahead and ran through the whole thing, but uh, what are your thoughts? Well, this is neither here nor there, but in, in keeping with our uh, bipartisan uh, bitch fest nature, um, I do want to point out that Democrats do do this, and there was a particularly hilarious McSweeney's piece uh, titled, If I Emailed My Parents Like Democrats Email Me, um, which uh, maybe we can put in the show notes or something, but you should definitely take a look at it because it's uh, hysterical and gives you a really good sense of what these emails uh, look like <laughs> and how absolutely absurd they are. Now, they're not as kind of scammy as, um, you know, setting up recurring donations or um, things like that. But I mean, it, it's just, it's so frustrating that these are the people who have the authority to pass laws that regulate technology uh, when clearly they, and I'm giving them the benefit, benefit of the doubt here, they clearly just don't understand it. It could certainly be that they don't care, but I'm, I'm going to be nice and assume they just don't understand it. I personally don't get political fundraising emails. I don't know how I've managed to avoid it. Perhaps never donating to a politician has helped. It, it's just kind of crazy that you would go to bat for this in particular, because I can't think of anything that makes you look scummier than this kind of thing. Um, yeah, I got sucked into the text messages. I don't really get the emails, but my phone, I don't know how my phone number somehow, and actually a lot of them addressed me as Bernadette. So maybe it was whoever had the I, phone number before me. 
somehow get those text messages from people who address me as either one of my parents' names or one of my siblings' names, probably because before I unlisted from all of them, they used one of those like white pages websites that Mm -hmm. uh, didn't have the correct name or something. And I just started sending vaguely threatening messages back uh, until they stopped messaging me. Well, it, good for you getting them to stop. I'm pretty sure that actually responding to them just shows them there's a live body there and often makes it worse. The but, local um, ones here actually are staffed by actual people instead of robots. So uh, like the local politicians in the Chicago area, uh, I have gotten some interesting responses to my responses. That's funny. Well, at any rate, so I got I started getting them and they're just these appalling. They're so shoddy. I assumed that they were some kind of, you know, the equivalent of the Nigerian prince email scam. I thought that they were some kind of offshore outfit trying to bilk me. Literally, the money gets stolen off and it goes to Russia or India or something. Only later did I realize, yeah, it's like, these things are sent by the actual political committees for the parties. And as you mentioned, it is bipartisan. Um, I, I, in my article kind of say my extra complaint with Republicans is not only do, are they doing a bad thing, but they do a bad thing badly. Like they're very incompetent with it. It, it goes to our theme of tech illiteracy going, you know, beyond just the but really substance though- of it. When you think about their largely aging demographic, that incompetence doesn't really show through as much because they might not be hitting the demographic most likely to pick up on how incompetent it is, which makes it even more dangerous. Well, that, yes. And as I mentioned in the article, why would the GOP make what seems like a tactically dumb decision of making spam email into a cause? And well, I'm sorry, but their most motivated base are the same people who see 3,400% impact increase and go, ooh, well, I might donate to that. So it is somewhat connected. It's a bit sad. But the, the email piece and the tech dirt piece, you know, they kind of tie into this larger, there are there are much bigger forces at play of which... The weaponization subcommittee and the spam email operation are sort of um, symptoms. You know, there's a vicious cycle at play here. Um, And I get into this at the end of the email article that there are a lot of trickle down consequences from the GOP's choice under Donald Trump to double down on being the party that sort of disdains experts and denigrates expertise you know, policy competence is not currently held up and rewarded. Being a fighter is. Um, The party's unofficial motto is, you know, buddy fights. And as I have said just so many times, you know, blindly fighting with energy actually is not a winning strategy. And we've seen it. There are immediate consequences to this for the party. My favorite example being holding a press conference at the uh, at Four Seasons Total Landscaping. But it also is what leads to end up having your party apologize for insurrectionists and tap dance around Trump's call to, you know, terminate the Constitution. But uh, there are longer term consequences as well. Being this belligerent, incompetent party is going to turn you 
turn off the educated as they look at you. And if the educated don't like you, well, you're going to find yourself turned out of elite institutions. And if elite institutions are not friendly to you, um, you will find yourself quickly unpopular with the young who are going to colleges or and whatnot. I'm going to be so pessimistic thing- here yeah. and say, I think as a, a general proposition, that's all right. But you also have just a number, a larger number than you would hope of highly educated people who are willing to forsake everything in the quest to stick it to their opponent. We are now a culture of trolling. And I don't think that that divides neatly along the educated and less educated lines that it might've used to. Uh, I think you have a lot of people that have just bought into that and um, you know, unfortunately, it plays to people with a certain childish attitude. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I think both can be true at once. And I think you see that at the high levels of the Republican elite. And that is another one that, again, I, I think is a bipartisan phenomenon. But I do think there is a separate issue here. And we see, you see it in the data. I mean, in the in the last election cycle, um, the midterms young people voted in droves. They had very high turnout and they voted for Democrats by just a huge margin. Um, Some other Trump era election cycles, they were comparable, but the gap has widened much larger than we ever saw before Trump came on the scene. Certainly. And um, I think that does ultimately mean if you're the Republican party that you have this long-term issue where you're, you're basically saying, well, we're not worried about having the computer programmers and the scientists and the lawyers sympathize with us. We don't need actual talent in uh, Silicon Valley. We're just going to jam the square peg of politics down into the round hole of culture and brute force our way to outcomes we like from the top, even though these institutions within them, within the Silicon Valley tech company or whatever, we won't have a seat at the table because we've turned off everybody in that class. I think that is a deeply pernicious phenomenon um, that is that is going on here. And it ties into ultimately, why are there fewer people, not no one, but fewer people who can help the GOP do email competently why are there fewer people who are willing to try to set up alt social media platforms and make them a success? Um, this notion, and I've seen Donald Trump Jr. try to push it, that the Republicans are going to make an alternate economy, I think is just such a terrible idea. Okay, well, that's our crescendo of ranting, I think. I think <laughs> we've we've hit the peak. I want to reiterate again, because it is important. Yeah. I mean, I'm not talking about all Republicans and I'm not talking about all issues. And I think there are glimmers of hope. I think when you get outside of the really culture war, uh, clickbaity type of issues, there are still serious Republicans thinking seriously about issues. I hope to do some episodes of the show upcoming on uh, Chinese tech competition and uh, the government's attempt to respond to that. And I should also note, I mean, I'm not, I am no progressive. So there is a degree to which I am speaking in large part out of frustration. 
even if I were progressive, I think it's important that there be two sort of strong sides politically in any liberal democracy for it to function well. But yeah, actually, I do have a certain degree of sympathy that I'd like there to be a robust conservative wing of American politics. I don't don't get me wrong. I don't mean that in some like theocratic fascist way. I mean it more in a like Reagan economic development way. Uh, but yeah, yeah, you know, to lay my cards out, I, I would like that to be a thing. So I'm, you know, frustrated at the current turn precisely because I think populism just really doesn't work. It leads to tech illiteracy. It is incompetent by design. I think that's my closing word, Ari. What, what, what do you have to say as we head on out? My closing word and my fervent prayer and hope and wish is that the federal government, and I'm going to broaden this, we've talked about the executive branch mostly, but the legislative branch does its uh, own share of jawboning uh, to a, a large extent. All I will say is if the government just sticks to its own business, keeps its nose out of other people's business, uh, there will be nothing to investigate. And then any such efforts to investigate will be more clearly exposed as pure theater without any hint of seriousness to it. So if the government would just get the hell out of the business of content moderation and tr stop trying so hard to influence it, we could all kind of go home. And that's never going to happen. But um, we could we could talk about something else. God, that would be nice. Ari, this has been, I was going to say a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. It has not been pleasant in the sense that this stuff is sort of uh, disappointing to see, but I'm glad we've covered it and you've covered it well with me. Thank you so much for coming on. We're going to have you back again soon, I'm sure. Thanks for having me. Always great to be here. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. If you enjoy conversations like this one, please give us that five-star rating wherever you listen. And if you really, 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 really like such conversations, head on over to techfreedom.org and find that donate button. I'm Corbin Barthold. Thank you. Till next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.